Hello, and welcome to Going Off Track. Hi. Um, How you feeling? Good. Yeah? I feel like I've been podcasting a lot. And you my, have. My jaw is getting tired. Yeah, I can tell that. You're yeah. sat, sitting there with your mouth open. Do you know what I'm doing after this? Um, you're not going to yoga because you do that early. I do that early. I'm going to emo Amos's place to podcast. Oh, he's not going to get 100% out of you, man. No, he's definitely not. It's good. This is for, uh, I have another podcast. Do you mind if I talk about my other podcast? I would love to hear about it. I do another podcast called Drifter Sympathy. We, uh, we've did, uh, two seasons on Feral Audio and, uh, we're starting to work on some new stuff. Um, and it's basically emo telling a story from his childhood, which is always insane. And then us talking about it and then email edits in all this music and sound effects. He spends a lot of time. On he these. spends a ton of time. Well, email's always on tour. It's like a piece of art. Yes. It's like a piece of audio art. And yeah. email's on the road so much. He just works on, you know, email plays with Grails, Ohm, Holy Sons, Lights and Champagne. He's in like 19 bands. So he edits these and does them on the road. And then every other episode is kind of like obscure music from that era. Like if you ever see email, have you ever seen email DJ? No. Like when I DJ it, I like bring my like laptop, whatever. When email DJs, he brings like actual vinyl records and just crates of them and just this, all this obscure, cool stuff. And it's like, he's like really, like really knows music. Right. Like he knows so much more about music than I do. <laughs> I know a lot about very specific types, but I feel like he really knows a lot. So yeah, so this podcast is really fun and uh, we record it at his apartment and he lives near me. And so after this, I'm going to, probably drink like my fifth coffee of the day and go over emails and talk about some insane situations. So if that sounds interesting to you, check it out. Uh, today, Drifter sympathy. Drifter, in case you forgot. In drift, case you drifted off there. In case you drifted off. Drifter <laughs> sympathy. Um, but today on the podcast, our guest is not email Amos, uh, but it is someone else with two one syllable names. Yeah. Two four letter names. Well, I guess Amos. Yeah. Yeah. Two. Yeah. A similar name. Email Amos. John Bush. John Bush. John's an old pal of mine. I've known him for years, which is pretty apparent. Not the John Bush from Anthrax. Not the John Bush from Anthrax. This John Bush may actually be, as he did bring up, the most interesting man in the world. If that that guy from that commercial really existed, um, this may be him. John's done tons of shit in his life, and <laughs> and he's not afraid to talk about it. Yes. Yeah, so this podcast, yeah, talks about his how he came up um his time touring with the swing and others and no effects uh his time as a bartender for me first in the gimme gimme his time in iraq his time in iraq uh yeah fights shooting guns i mean we really run the whole gamut with john he doesn't blow up a cow just so he does not spoiler alert yeah (laughs) we all have to have limits um and we also talk about his career now as a restaurateur yeah he's blowing he's blowing up he's blowing up yeah so yeah, John uh, Jiu-Jitsu, we talk about a lot of things, which is what this podcast is all about. Um, and yeah, John has been uh, a friend of the podcast and it's, he just came over to Brad's apartment. It was basically, that's like the whole great thing about this podcast. It's like an excuse to have your friend come over and talk just about old shoot stories. Shit and yeah. eat Girl Scout cookies. Yes. Mm-hmm. And if you want to eat a Girl Scout cookies, <laughs> um, Brad, you get, I, I'm doing a much better job at this I, than you are. I appreciate this. Uh, yes. Go to goingofftrack.com slash cookies. Sounds like I'm lying, but this is an actual link Brad made. And if you go there, you can buy Girl Scout cookies from him and support the Girl Scouts. Well, they're from my daughter, my 10 year old daughter. Yeah. And supports the Girl Scouts. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got s'mores this year, which are good. S'mores? What's that? You know, like s'mores, like. Yeah. The- 
It's, the, is the is word it? s'more trademark? They can't call them that? S'mores. They're called, I think they're called s'mores. Oh, I thought you, I thought you I said... I don't think you could trademark it because it's three different, like, trademarked products. I know. I thought, <laughs> I thought you were saying the cookies were called s'mores. I was trying to add a little, like... Oh, I thought you were like, <laughs> legally they can't call them s'mores, but they can call them s'mores. <laughs> I, was trying to, I was trying to irritate Benny, who's probably not listening. Yeah, Benny's definitely not listening. <laughs> um... But, uh, but yeah, so do that. Um, also, uh, if you want to record yourself eating cookies, you should do it at Pulse Music in the highest fidelity possible. Yeah. Even though this particular episode was not recorded there. Yes. Most of our episodes are, and they're very generous to allow it. Yes. So. Yes. So thanks to Pulse Music. Although thanks to Brad for letting us record this <laughs> one at your house. And thanks to John Bush for coming by and telling all these insane stories. And let's listen to this podcast with John Bush now. Here we are, Brad's apartment. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, this is the first, no, yeah, this is the first actual full podcast we've done. Yeah, here, it's right? the first guest we've had at Brad's place. Uh, oh, you feel so special? special? Yeah. Check me out. It's just me and Brad. We're sitting here with the legendary John Bush. John Bush, yeah. How should we introduce you, John? <laughs> oh, man, I don't know. Um, <laughs> living legend. Restaurant mogul, uh, the real bartender most, to the gods. The real most interesting man on the planet. It's possible. <laughs> I got good stories. You have a lot of stories, and that's why you're here. Yes. You would start this podcast, and my mom was just here for Christmas, and she was telling a very funny story about when I was like 10 years old, and my mom was like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I said, I don't want to be boring. (laughs) (laughs) You've accomplished it. I know. I think I did. So Um, when did you start the band Bush? (laughs) Well, it's a long story. Dude, Bush has been like the worst last... My whole (laughs) life I've hated having the last name Bush. Really? Like... My, yeah, I don't, I'm a lot even of, pre, even pre. Yeah, well, a uh, lot of people George. don't know. I mean, you. I think you know, but my real name is Janos. My mom named me after a Hungarian friend that helped her through her pregnancy when before I was born. So she named me after him. And uh, being named Janos in Santa Cruz, <laughs> California, in the seventies was kind of normal. <laughs> but you know, somehow Janos turned into Janos. It turned into somehow when and I was in fifth and sixth grade. My nickname was No Nukes. <laughs> Because I was like the hip, I was like the hippie kid, and, it's a, it's I, and literally it made me morph. hate it. So when and when we when I went from sixth grade to seventh grade, I changed, changed it to John because Jan Janos is Jonathan right. and blah blah blah. Wait, so how's Janos spelled? J A N O S. Oh yeah, the J Janus. Yeah, Janus. Janush. Nobody never knew how to pronounce it right, so I was kind of fuck it. Let's go to John Bush, and then John Bush. I kind of always liked the one syllable first name, one syllable last name, John Bush. Like, nobody ever called me John. Or, I mean, I had Little John well, that's for a while. What, when you have a name like that, yeah. people call you by both names. Yeah, and I liked it. Yeah, yeah. No, I think it's great. But, man, then I had to go through fucking 14 years of a, a two awful presidents right. with the same last name. Oh, a yeah. stupid band Bush. Yeah. Like, you know, I never joined the military because I never wanted to be Private Bush. I mean, <laughs> God forbid if I made it a, 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 a career, got the Major Bush, that would be amazing. Yeah. Okay. I guess everything was not Zen. No, no, no. <laughs> I, but I like my name now. Like, John Bush doesn't bother me. But I have a hard time with, like, I keep thinking if I ever have kids, like, I have to worry about the name, you know? Like, uh, I've always liked the name Rosie, but I was like, Rose Bush? Pfft, that ain't gonna happen. <laughs> no, it's good, dude. Four letters is good. Yeah. Let me tell you, four letters. I back it. You're the front of the alphabet. I'm Bayer, so it's like, you know, mm. you're up there in school. You're at the top the of the... First person asked to do stuff. I yeah. Like, yeah. Eh, whatever. What um, so let's go back there, dude. Let's go back to your origins in Santa Cruz. 
Ah, Santa Cruz. God, if anybody's listening and knows Santa Cruz, it is the craziest town. It was a town that was like a real sleepy nothing town until the 60s. And then when the summer kind of happened, the summer, you know, summer of love and all that kind of happened, and when the summer of love started ending and all these people got into drugs and, you know, the Hells Angels started kind of ruining the scene and just, the scene turned, got, got overpowered with violence and, and, and drugs, all these hippies fled and they fled all around the bay. And Santa Cruz turned into this crazy hippie hick community because there's these weird mountains and there's real life hillbillies up in these mountains. And then it was like this surfer town and then all these hippies were there. And I swear to God, I feel like every single mother from San Francisco moved to Santa Cruz. Because when I grew up, out of the crew of like 20 of us, 25 of us, like maybe three of us had dads that were around. Whoa. Like it was all single moms raising children. And most of them were boys. It was this real, so it turned <laughs> into this like, oh, it was such a weird town. Like I just think about growing up there and it seemed normal to me at the time because of movies and stuff like that. But it, like we had punk rock gangs, we had skinhead gangs, we had a mod gang, we had surfer gangs, we had uh, like jock gangs. They're called the Oakley boys because they all wore Oakley like blade sunglasses. <laughs> and they, we had a British rocker motorcycle gang, you know, the, they were called the VRCC. It was a vintage rocker motorcycle club. And they were all like these 20 year olds with greaser hair and leather jackets and Nortons and Triumphs. And like, it was the, it was like, the weirdest thing. Now, now at retrospect, I look at it and like, and we all fought or got got together. And we we're like two gangs would unify and it gets one gang, and then that was so weird. And just thinking about how, no, and then the whole Nazi skinhead thing happened, and it was like everybody like Santa Cruz turned into this like traditional skinhead haven where traditional skinheads from all over California would move to Santa Cruz because we had a big gang called the Dover Arms Firm. It was so stupid. Were you, when did you kind of start going to punk shows and that kind of stuff? <sighs> I had a my older cousin Taffy. When I was like 12 years old, I had a neighbor and he's and my neighbor came over and was like, can I, you want to go to live music? I have what's ticket. And I mean, it sounds like I'm bragging, but it's truth. The first show I ever got to go see was The Clash. And I saw The Clash at the Civic Auditorium. I believe it was the Combat Rock Tour. I just remember it was a stage, had TVs all over the whole back of the stage. It was 1983. Yeah. The next day I walked up to my mom. I was like, I gotta go buy this record from The Clash. <laughs> so I bought The Clash record and I'm not even joking. I had like Frankenstein, The Wolfman, ding book where you turn the pages and then i had a clash record and my cousin came over and she's like three years older than me and she was from austin texas and she stayed with us for a summer and she was like came over sitting in my room looked and she's like the clash well that's my favorite band she's like are you serious i'm like she's like oh my god i got so much to show you and she turned me on to punk music like everything like she just turned me on to like so much Wait, music. how old was she she was probably 15 or 16 oh my god from austin texas you know right like she was like friends with the big boys and like the big boy that was that band and she would like she turned me on to so much music she turned me on to a radio station that was on at like friday, thursday and friday at midnight that played all punk music to like six in the morning and when she left that summer i remember she gave me a sex pistols record a ramones record and i think a damned record i might have made up the damn record but she gave me a sex pistols record and the Ramones record for sure. And then a bunch of like mixed tapes that she recorded off the TV stuff, the radio station and a Sex Pistols poster. The one that had um, Johnny Rotten dressed as a teddy boy. Yeah, yeah. And that was it like that, you know. And then she had she kind of introduced me to some of her friends through that, like her punk friends. And I kind of knew her punk friends from then. 
And then my mom got sick and I went to Sacramento for two years. My mom got cancer. It was a, a treatable cancer, but our grandparents lived in Sacramento and they said that they'll take care of us if we move there. So for like two years, I went to Sacramento and that was eighth grade and ninth grade. So I did, yeah, eighth grade and ninth grade. So like I was like the punk kid in my school. Like when I, eighth grade, was, I was the only punk kid in my school. And then when I went to McClatchy High School, there was a couple other punk kids. And I was like, oh, cool. And then I got kind of in the punk scene there. And then when we moved back to Santa Cruz, that's when I kind of, well, instead, I kind of found oi music and got more into like, like skinhead stuff. And that was like pre-Nazis. It was just skinheads. It was punks and skins. Right. It wasn't a difference. And But I was really into oi and I was really into all this music and you know, like I was like, I had that, you know, little man syndrome. So I wanted to be like tough. <laughs> so I, you know, I shaved my head, boots and braces and did that whole nine yards. It still went to punk shows. Seen some of those pics. Yeah. And then went back to Santa Cruz and then went so the two years I was gone, this same kind of skinhead scene happened. And I met Joel Loya and this motley crew of hippie parents, skinheads. It was just like my crew for the, you know, I mean, they're still my friends today. Right. Do you remember um, what city it was that we met in? I believe it was in San Francisco. It wasn't. It wasn't? No. I remember us hanging out at Mad Dog in the Fog in San Francisco. That's my first memory. It was Salt Lake City. Utah? Yeah, you were with the Utters, and I think you guys were going east, and we were going west with Rancid. Was that when we were with... Um, um, it was 94. Were we on tour with... Um, God damn it. You played... We all played together in Salt Lake. Oh, with Rancid. Yeah, so it was like the Goops... Utters, Rancid, and I feel like there was another band. I think maybe Chokebore was... No, not Chokebore. Somebody else was with us. What was the um, Jack Grisham's second band? Joy Killer? Yeah. Yeah, Joy Killer. Because we, it wasn't with them? No, no, no. That yeah. was late. We did tour with them on that tour, but that was later. Yeah. I loved them. Oh, my God. Their first... Their, Joy Killer's first yes. record was amazing. It's I mean, great. Jack is one of those people that is the creepiest, grossest scariest human being i've ever known in my life but i'm so happy he likes me yeah <laughs> you know what i mean like th- that i'm friends with jack grisham it's just there's a part of me that's like yes jack grisham likes me <laughs> but i am petri- i am petrified of him he's he, i mean Dude. the scariest people i know in punk rock are only scared of jack grisham i saw yeah. the joy killer when i was in high school i was probably like 16 and he signed that first record for it was like when you're 16 you're like i want to get autographs and yeah. he signed it and it's the most ins- he wrote all these like drums he's like oh, he's like are you in a band and i was like yeah i just started my first band he's like let me give you some tips he's like drums got to sound chunka chunka and he just writes like drums chunka chunka <laughs> guitar has got to be like blar blah and he just wrote all this gibberish all over it God, do you still have it yeah oh that's awesome <laughs> yeah dude we did like i we t- i toured with those guys for like couple weeks really yeah yeah that first record is great if you if you're yeah, listening to this was, and you're not familiar, that was the record they were touring yeah. i think yeah yeah for real they're awesome so you uh, were, just, i don't remember that at all i'm pretty sure i'm almost positive because i think you were doing you were doing merch for the owners well, then probably I fall mean, of 94 was. yeah that's all i did from like 1990 to 2001 so how did that happen yeah how did that happen swinging others I think one of their first show ever was on my back porch, you know? I mean, there was, I mean, Johnny Bennell, the singer, the Greg was part of the, my, you know, the Dover Arms Firm crew that I was in. I knew him forever. The, uh, let's see, it was Greg, Darius came in a little bit later, but Johnny Bennell, Johnny Bennell and um, Kevin Wickersham, the original bass player, they were like the kids that hung out with us. They were like kind of into, we called them like suede heads because they wouldn't shave their head, but they hung out with us and they listened to kind of the same music, but they were like the guys who were like really into the buzzcocks and the undertones, you know, they, you know, 
those bands that you know as a, like a traditional skinhead were like yeah they're skinhead bands but they weren't they were right. just like you know weird pop bands at the same time that the cockney rejects were around and all those guys were around and it was still good music but johnny i mean johnny got johnny p bucks and the swinging hours his nickname p bucks i was with him was my either my graduation party or my 18th birthday party at my house we got hammered and he was known for getting hammered in penis pants that was like kind of what happened he did <laughs> and he went and fell asleep in his car and peed his pants and we woke him up and he was just like fuck i just go and we drove downtown and we went to taco bell and we were ordering for the taco bell and he was paying for it and the girl was like ah, did you jump in the ocean last night and he goes no nah, i beat my pants and greg <laughs> turned to him and goes ah, johnny p bucks and it just stuck and that was his nickname i mean not that many people call him that anymore, but no. man, that was his nickname for 20 solid years. Right. <laughs> and the Swinging Udders, that was Greg's cat, was pregnant when we were just sitting around. It was Johnny P. Bucks and Swinging Udders. Really? But, dude, it's like, it's the worst name in, it's the worst name in punk rock. And they know it. And it was just like, I swear to God, I, we were hoping it would be one of those names that got, trans, you know, you just forget what it means. Right. Like Rancid. Like nobody thinks Rancid. Right. They think the man Rancid, not Rancid. Right. We were hoping that would happen, but it never did. People, like, every interview you ever did, they're like, "What's up with the name?" You're like, so this, this was you were hanging in Santa Cruz. Yeah, this was Santa Cruz. okay. Because I associated them so much with San Francisco. I guess. Well, it was you know, you know, I would say that we were the biggest band coming out of Santa Cruz, and yeah. then in the early '90s was when you know, that's when you know, it was alternative music was the cool thing, and you know, we were going up to San Francisco every weekend and playing shows and. You know, we all, and then like, I remember me and Max moved to San Francisco and the other guys still lived in Santa Cruz. So they would, Max would drive to Santa Cruz or they would drive up to do band practice. And then we got signed to Fat, Fat Records kind of started letting us use their rehearsal space. And then slowly the band all moved to San Francisco and then, you know, New Red Archives signed us first. Right. I love what he calls us. Like, I was so, such part of that band <laughs> you, for well, so you long. Were, dude. Like, <laughs> you know, everybody's just like, yeah, John Bush from Sweeney Others. Of course. Yeah. I'm all, yeah, I never, never learned how to play an instrument. I, I, I didn't even learn how to turn. I was the worst roadie of all time. <laughs> I didn't have a driver's license. I didn't know how to tune a guitar. I could carry equipment and sell merch. And that's it. What's crazy about that record, because I used to interview Johnny about it, is I, how many songs are on Streets of San Francisco? Yeah, a lot of songs. And they're all good. Yeah. It's crazy. It's one of my favorite records. Yeah, it's an amazing record. I mean, like for like a punk record of, I mean, it was, you know, it came from the influence of all of us listening to Oi and that kind of music. You know, it's like Johnny wanted to be the singer of Stiff Little Fingers more than anything in the world. That was his just, ah, I love Stiff Little Fingers. That's ambition. And those were the bad, those days, those bands never came around. You never got to see those bands live. It was all just on record. We didn't, I mean, YouTube didn't exist. So you, everything you found was like weird VHS tapes somebody would bring back from Europe or randomness you know yeah. so it's like you know we didn't really get the you know, even the records were hard to find yeah like we had the, a record store in santa cruz called logos that somehow magically had every record came yeah. through there i have no idea my whole i still have records to the, the store the logos closed this year in santa cruz it's heartbreaking and i took you know i still have all these records I was pulling and they still have the logos like price tag sticker on them but i mean like i found Every Oi record, you know, The Sound of Oi, which one of the hardest records in the world to get for $1.99 there. <laughs> you know, it's like that's, it was just the weirdest thing. Like, it was only famous for jazz. They, they had like $3,000 jazz vinyl and had just these layers, like floors of jazz and, not, and, and, and then like two sections for punk. <laughs> and it was like every record, you're like, I'll buy this, I'll buy this, I'll buy this. And then like a, the next week, it'd be a whole new cubby full of punk records and you're like i don't know where they're finding these but i bought as many of them as i could i want can i skip ahead a little bit because i'm curious 
like the era, maybe like juvenile product, working class that era when sort of Green Day is getting signed, all these bands are getting huge. I mean, what what do you kind of look back at that time? What was that like? Ah, man, that was like I think at like the '80s when I was like a punk in like the early '80s, it was scary. Like I think about like there was like there was you were constantly trying to get you were constantly getting beat up by jocks i mean it's funny to think about that now because like jocks are in the punk now yeah, you're like, you're like right. so weird. but back then you were like a punk rocker and jock jocks thought you were gonna kill you like yeah. you really had to walk around in packs and it was scary and then the flip side of that is the punk scene was filled with creeps like there was just like it was you're constantly like everybody was like taking acid so it was like these weird weirdos would clump onto the punk scene because of like drugs and girls and they could be cool. They could be cool in this weird. The weirdos could be cool in a weird scene. I guess um, that was really. So it was like really. I remember just a lot of fear and violence from like eighty three to eighty eight. There's right. a lot of fear and violence. And then when I got kind of like I was like Nazi skin had just got so big. I was like, fuck! I'm not shaving my head anymore. I don't want to deal with anything anymore. So I'm just gonna be me. Like I'm just gonna be me. And then like we, me and Max moved to San Francisco, and then. The punk scene was kind of growing. That's when we met Fat Mike. And we actually, we met like uh, Chris Shiflett and the guys from No Use first. And then like the guys from Tilt and Screw 32 and like Davey Havoc and those guys from AFI. I mean, AFI was a bunch of fucking idiots when we first met them. That, that, was, their nick, that was their name. And then we started going to Berkeley and started hanging out all these like punk houses. And then, you know, Gilman Street opened up. I mean, they had the farm, which was the old punk club in San Francisco that I saw like all the early 80s punk. And then there was like the Mav and Broadway had fun shows every once in a while. And then when Gilman Street opened up, it really turned into this community of punk. And it was like everybody supported everybody. There was no haters. Did you ever see App Ivy? Uh, only at the at the farm. Okay. They, I don't remember if they ever played the Gilman Street, but I saw them at App Ivy a bunch. But uh, like it was this really fun community of band. I mean, maybe it was because we were in a band at that point. So it was like bands hanging out with bands. Oh, let's play a show at the Gilman Street. And then we all go to the Screw 32 house or we all go to the AFI house or we all go, you know, or we, if you came in the city and you played the night break or anywhere or the bottom of the hill, our house was the party house. And it turned into this really like fun family. And it was like punk was kind of cool then. So it wasn't that wasn't dangerous, you know, uh, uh, like the dudes were cool enough or if the guys were creepy with girls, we'd be like, get the fuck out of here. Like, no, 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 we don't. We don't have to put up with your nonsense anymore because we're all 21 now. We don't need you to buy us beer. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it was definitely just, it was, I mean, there was a really, I mean, I would go, me and Max would go see live music five days a week. Five days a week, we'd go to a show. And, it, it, you know, the other two days, we were probably too hungover, just like, I need sleep, or, <laughs> or had this, the stupid jobs we had just to pay the rent and get by. And I lived in San Francisco, I was paying $180 a month rent, struggling to pay it. What were you doing? What do you mean? Oh, I make money. God, I worked at, I was a bar back at Mad Dog in the Fog. Uh, I was a bar back at, at um, Club Deluxe, which was at that time, swing music was huge. Right. So me and Max were like the punk kids that hung out at the hot swing club. <laughs> that was so weird. Um, yeah, just, you know, I mean, literally just made just enough money and a job that I could quit, go on tour, come back, find another job like that. Right. Go on tour, come back, find another job. I mean, I did everything from working at like, a place called the People's Cafe, like prepping salad mix yeah did anything i mean did things change when all these major labels are throwing money around and stuff or you were kind of in a your things own change of- i mean it, it definitely like 
there was, you know, there's definitely some bands got signed, you know, there was definitely a time where like everybody was really tight and really, really close. And then people, you know, started getting those big deals. And then the whole sellout thing kind of name got thrown around and I never really believed in the sellout. I was like, isn't this the goal of it? But I definitely know some people that went real rock star. Like, you know, there's, I don't blame anybody for selling out to make money playing music. That's what, that's the dream. Sure. I do blame people that were your friends that uh, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I can go hang out with this guy instead. So, you know, screw you. I'm like, you've been sleeping on my goddamn floor for the last three years. And now you're too cool to get me a backstage pass or get me into the show or just fucking say hello. Right. So I saw a lot of that starting probably 90 or 2000. No, let's take that back. Sorry. Like 97, 98, you started seeing the family, the crew, the family start kind of like splitting up. I mean, I always say like I saw it started on the warp tour. Like I remember when the warp first three warp tours, it was like everybody was together. Right. It was like Kevin was like, here's the beer. Like night two or 1995 warp tour. Some of the best friends I have today are the people I met on that tour. Who was on that tour? You remember Lisa Brownlee? Lisa Brownlee wasn't on the tour yet. Um, wow, I, you don't hear about Lisa being predated on Warped Tour very yeah. often. If she was, she wasn't who she was. And I, know, I mean, I knew Lisa Brownlee from San Francisco. Okay. Like, she used to hang out at the bars that I worked at. So I knew, like, gosh, she, I remember it. before I knew her, I was like, who is that girl? Oh my God. <laughs> She's the hottest chick of the world. <laughs> yeah. And then now I know her. I'm like, ah, Lisa, I can't believe I've known you for 30 years. But um, no, there was like, it was, um, God damn it, it was L7. No use for a name. I'm trying to think of the big L7. No use for a name. Um, Jesus, was this, Sid that on was that this, tour? No, Sid wasn't uh, on it. Was the second warp tour? Wasn't no, it was the a, first warp tour in '94? Nope, '95. It was. Yeah. God damn it! I, I'm totally blanking names right now. Um, Brad, if only you had a computer right in front of you. Oh wow! Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Warp tour 2000. I cannot believe I'm blanking names. I mean, right dude, now. 1995. I don't remember a lot. Yeah. Um, it, it's like sick of it all was on it. Okay. I'm thinking I'm, I'm trying to, I'm totally not blame, remembering the, the headliners. That's what's making me crazy. Um, Ooh, no doubt. No a little band called, were, uh, were they on the first Sublime? one? It says, yeah, Sublime was on it. Yeah. Sublime was on it. They were one. Death tones, face yep. to face, no use. Sick of it all, gutter mouth, swinging udders, tilt. Yeah. 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 But who were the headliners? It was like, let me see. God damn it. I am. Just brain farting away because I cannot remember. There's two headliners that... No doubt in Sublime, it says. This was... I don't know if this is the whole tour. No, it was... This is, Flo- this is Orlando. Oh, it's going to make me crazy. Oh, Orange 9 was on Yeah, Orange 9 year? millimeter. Oh, That's where shit. I met Chaka the first time. And Civ both. Really? Civ was on? I don't remember Civ being on at all. Quicksand. Quicksand. That's who I couldn't remember. God damn it. Quicksand. Wow, all was three like, of those bands yeah, were on Warped Quicksand was, like, was the headliner. Wow. And, I, and on that tour is when Sublime started getting big. Okay. So they kind of started off as like low on by the end of it, they were on the top. Yeah. And their photographer at the time was this guy, Pat Conlon. And me and Pat Conlon became, I mean, one day I met Pat Conlon, Chris Shiflett, me and Max stole, a, we didn't steal a keg, but there was like this corral zone where all the kegs where everybody could have beer. But there was like this big bush, bunch of bushes behind the corral zone. So we just moved a keg over into these bushes and... Started and so we didn't have to wait in line or deal with this shit. We just had our own secret keg over here, and like you know, Chris Shiflett and Pat Holland are today one of my closest friends. That's wild. I have a photo of all of us like around the keg, like yay! So weird. How did you sort of meet Fat Mike and kind of become involved with that stuff? Was that after that was through the others? It was through, yeah, it was through the others. It was um, God, I can't even remember how it happened. It, it was almost like this weird Jerry Seinfeld like. 
where Mike was courting Sweeney Nutters, trying to get him off New Red Hour Friday to come there. And Max and Mike, Mike became really good friends. And I remember somehow Max went home to D.C. or something like that. And Mike called him. He was pre-cell phones. Mike called the house and was like, hey, is Max there? I'm all, no, no. He's like, who's this? I'm all, John. He's like, hey, John, uh, what are you doing? I'm in the city and I'm kind of just, I was going to go see a movie or something. And I was like, all right. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like me and Mike became really good friends. And it's like, I, I think that maybe I, I, this is my perception. I, like maybe I was one of the only guys that wasn't like fan struck by Mike. Right. And I kind of just was like, what up? And this was, was kind of up for anything. I mean, I was definitely always like, down the try like i'll go there i'll eat that i'll try that i'll do this like none of that scared me too much and i think he kind of liked to have some like weird normal friend even though i don't think i was normal but he's <laughs> really like i think about me and mike's relationship and everybody was like oh yeah you're like he always says you're his best friend and you're always you're the most honest person to him which has been cool and hard at the same time yeah and but your apartment got mentioned in a song he did he, he's, he wrote <laughs> two songs about me oh yeah yeah pretty weird <laughs> And you're the official bartender of the yeah. first in the Gimme Gimme's. I bartended in the gimme, for the Gimme Gimme's. Like, Is that uh, when was the, what was the first year you did that? God, I don't remember. 2000? Okay. I did it twice. The two years that the Gimme Gimme's with the bar mitzvah. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what's fun. that gig? You're on a, like a mo, uh, it's on wheels? Yeah, it was, it was like a, they made a road case that unfolded into a bar. And my job every day was to wake up, restock the bar. I set it up for an hour before the show and for like half an hour after the show. And I bartended on stage. I mean, it was awesome. I, I was like the most loved man on the Warp Tour. <laughs> yeah. what's, what, what's, do you get good tips when you're on I, I, I can't remember how much they paid me. They yeah. paid me reasonably well. Like I, mean, I think I got paid 100 bucks a day, $700 a week, right. plus all expenses. And then I was making about two to three to $400 a day in tips. Holy shit, really? And for a dude, like, you know, back in the Warp Tour days, it was like every stitch of clothing I wore was like Vans, <laughs> no effects shorts, no use for name shirts, you know. Kid, no overhead. Nothing. I mean, <laughs> I, I remember I, I remember when I got paid, Mike, to be a dick, paid me in ones. <laughs> like, like, I, I, like, I remember I got off a tour with like, with like $4,000 in ones. No way. And I was just like, geez. And, just and I had, like, I had a giant sock full of change. I don't remember why I had a giant sock full of like, I had like $500 in like quarters, dimes and nickels in a <laughs> giant white tube sock stretched to hell. Wasn't there a show on Warp Tour where the, where Mike threw a bunch of dollars into the audience or something? Was that? Yeah, he, that was, I'm trying to somebody remember. they got, somehow they got screwed over. I forgot what some, I think it was like some other band was supposed to play and then backed out and Mike was just like. Well, you, you should only pay this much to see no effects. I'm giving everybody five dollars back. <laughs> so he handed it all the kids five five bucks each to like to apologize yeah. for some band backing up. Okay, yeah, it's vaguely familiar. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, Mike used to be a lot funnier until he got obsessed with politics. Yeah, and you know, I mean, I guess we all do that. We're all adults, and but you know, when he was just silly, when the No Effects was a silly band, I had a lot more fun. That's pretty much true. All across the board. Music and politics is a tough, tough one to mix up. I think it's a little of that. I also think that it's, you know, growing up is a trap. And it's like you, you feel like you start turning adult. And it's like, you're like, why do I care about this? Like, I never cared about this my whole life. And yeah. then, like, now I'm 47 years old and like I'm paying attention to politics. Fuck, I don't care. I mean, honestly, I don't care. 
like I, I wake up every day and just try to be the best dude I can be. And I want to hang out with my friends and I want to eat good food and I want to laugh and joke around. So why do I care? But I do and I can't stop. And then all of a sudden I'm talking about it and God, it's boring. Yeah. You wish you could be like, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I would get, I might get pissed off or upset about Ronald Reagan for a minute. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then I forgot about it. Yeah, you well, can't escape it I started now. Thinking about you can't girls. escape it. Yeah. I guess that's true. But I think it's also, it's to your point, it's partly growing up. You get older. I guess. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I spent probably 1991 till 2000 traveling the world, getting drunk and taking photos with my buddies and laughing. And then all of a sudden I was like, <laughs> I got to get my shit together. <laughs> I got I to like uh, get a real job. And, you know, I went and I went into the business that I'm in now and I got married and now I'm like, what the fuck did I do that for? Because <laughs> like, you might have died. <laughs> Not everybody has. Yeah, but I would have lived, brother. I would have lived. <laughs> How did you kind of, so you had always kind of worked at bars and stuff? Always. I mean, almost my whole life I've worked in the bar industry. And I always say I did because it, it gives you, the bartender world has changed now. Like yeah. it used to be like a photographer. It's like you had to be a skilled photographer. And then digital photographer came and now everybody's a photographer. And I feel like, I remember when I came to the city, Johnny T wouldn't let me bartend for two years. I had to work for him. I had to be a bar back and learn the trade and blah, blah, blah. And then I became a bartender. Yeah. And now anybody's a bartender. You can just go take a course or you can just learn how to make a Jack and Coke. He uh, respects the the trade. But, you know, I mean, it was was a vagrant's job. Like I could bartend. I mean, I've bartended in cities all over the world. Like, you know, when I would travel, I would work and then travel on my own. And, you know, I'd go to a bar. I'd be in like an island in Thailand and I'd sit at this bar, Sam and Dave's. And I'd sit there and sit there and sit there. Oh, I'm a bartender from New York. Oh, really? Oh, oh. You know any drinks? Oh, I'll get behind the bar. Oh, here's a Cosmopolitan, <laughs> New York Cosmopolitan. And I'd sit at the bar. And then by the end of the night, the owner would be like, dude, how long are you sticking around for? You want to bartend here for the next, as long as you're here? I can't pay you, but you can give tips and I'll feed you. And there's, we got a room in the hotel. You can stay it for free. Fuck. And I'd be like, all right. And I do that for a month. And then I get a little bored or start to feel like I'm wearing out my welcome and be like, all right, I'm going to move on. And then I'd go to, you know, Japan and work at a bar in Japan or I go to Australia or and then I'd always come back and always get a bartending job back. And what year did you move to New York? 90, like the end of 95. Right. Right after that first warp tour. But, you know, I was still going on tour swinging others. Like I would fly. I'm still going between swinging others, the warp tour, tour with no effects. You know, I, I was based in New York, but I was, you know, I don't think I was settled in New York for a long time. I mean, I lived on Ethan's couch for right. two years so much. When did Max move here? Maybe four years later, probably 2000, I'd say, 2001. I mean, had you always wanted to have your own bar or restaurant? Was that always a dream of yours? Or? I always wanted, to, I always in the back of my mind thought retirement would be me opening a little Irish bar and just running that Irish bar. And I remember we opened up Thistle Hill Tavern. We thought, I was like, this is it. This is what I'm doing. And then we met my other business partner, Dale Talday. And then we opened up Talday. And then we opened up another Talday. And then all of a sudden, I'm a restaurateur. And I'm like, which I am very, very proud of what I do. I'm very proud of the things that I've created. I, 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 I like the ride I'm on. It's definitely been interesting. But man, I miss touring. I miss my friends. I miss just, I don't give a fuck. You know, I'm just laughing and going nuts. 
What would you do if me if uh, me first got like another warp tour and asked you to come? I'd have to think about it. <laughs> uh, as a restaurateur, how do you feel about Yelp? Does it drive you insane? It's the worst thing in the entire world. <laughs> I love they're, talking they're about this. Extortion artists. Yeah. They yeah. Are. What the what Yelp will do is they'll come to you and be like, Hey, we love your restaurant. You mind if we put it on Yelp? And you're like, I don't care, sure. And then about three months in, they'll be like, Hey, so you know, you can get ultra advertising if you pay us five hundred dollars. You're like, No, that's cool. And they're like, Oh, okay. And then they put all your bad reviews on top and bury all your good reviews no in the bottom. Way, yeah, really? someone's working on a documentary like exposing this yeah. part of Yelp. And then and then if you give them the five hundred dollars, they'll put all your good reviews on top and bury all your bad reviews in the bottom. And it's like, you know, yeah, that is extortion. Yeah. And it's one of those situations. And then I think people that go on Yelp, it's like, get a fucking life, people. Yeah. It, it, okay. You know what? You know what I do when I don't, when I go to a restaurant that wasn't very good? I just don't go back. Yeah. And I tell my friends, I'm like, I didn't like that place. And you could try it. I, just, I didn't like it. You know, it's. I it, catch myself doing it sometimes. I'm like, why do I care what these strangers think about this? Like, you know what I mean? Well, like, I like the idea of Yelp for like a moving company. You know, or well, a the doctor. idea of a working model yeah. is great. I mean, you know, but I think if you had to put your real name, it think I, I don't pay attention to anything. You don't have to put your real name. Yeah, to. that's a good point. Because because that's the thing. It's like I can be Joe Schmo six 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 and say anything, and, and just be like John Bush sucks. I hate that <laughs> fucking guy. I got, I could tell you some stories. You know, what I mean, and everybody's like, "Do you hear about this guy? This Joe Schmo six six six. He really knows John Bush." And like. <laughs> I can make up a million things. I could just complain. There's just haters out there, and, they, and the only way they can make themselves feel better is shitting on other people. Right, and they're the ones with the most time, the haters. Yeah, those, yeah. yeah. I don't have time to go to eat at a restaurant and then go home and write a fucking nine-page Yelp review about what a crappy meal I had. And, you know, and I, I think that's like a weird sign of the times, too. Like, we're in that time where, like, I think it's like all people my age that have kids – and then, you know, I think a lot of people maybe came from abusive homes or, or single parent homes and they're like, when I have a kid, I'm going to do it right. I'm going to treat my kid like the angel that he deserves and blah, blah, blah. But they don't realize that they're creating these little monsters oh, yeah. that have no idea the word no or you can't or why not or you can't do that to me. You're just like, no, 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 no. This is the fucking real world. <laughs> like, you know, it, it, it's, it's a sign. And this is also making me sound very old. I get it. I know that I sound like. I remember my dad talking about this kind of nonsense and me like, chill out. And now I'm like, yep, now I've turned into my father. I'm just like, I grew up in a world where sticks and stones will break your bones, but words will never hurt you. So I'm like, all right, that makes sense. Yeah. But not today, man. Words are the enemy. Yeah. Watch the, we'll use words for defense, fist, like everything. It's like the idea of getting, I grew up with my whole life being scared of getting punched in the face. Watch what you say, you're going to get punched in the face. People don't have that anymore. They're like, punch him in the face? I'll sue that guy. He punches me in the face? I'll sue him. You're like, oh, Jesus. There's a lot of people that need a punch in the face in this world. I'm telling you, I'm not a big advocate for violence. But they're, you know, people forget that we're animals. And we, they forget that we're so different. Like, I think, you know, people gravitate towards people they like because we're kind of the same. Like, I like people that have the same values as me and same things that think like me. And we become friends and like, because we all are the same, but man, I meet people. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with that guy? <laughs> like that person's insane and they are insane. Yeah. And he probably thinks I'm insane. So we just stay away from each other. Yeah. Do you like, we were talking about jujitsu on the way here. Mm -hmm. You came from there. I mean, how, do you feel like that's kind of helped, helped you or do you enjoy doing that? Do you, is that a good outlet for you? 
Yeah, I mean, I, you know, if I'm sounding like a violent person, take I, I forgive me because I'm not. I'm not. I, I'm not a big brawler. I just grew up. I, I grew up in a time where fighting was very normal. Um, I've always done a martial art. I've done a martial art mostly because I'm, I've always been kind of hyper. Um, I also had, as I said, the little man syndrome. Uh, I also got beat up a lot when I was a kid. So I always I took martial arts. And then now in my later years, I continue to do martial arts because running on a ch- treadmill or lifting weights is lame <laughs> and boring. <laughs> so I found jujitsu about seven years ago and it's just obsessing. It's, I can't, I, I think about it all the time. It's it's like a chess game in your mind and one of the best physical workouts I've ever had. And it definitely calms me down. Like I used to like like to go if I, a fight broke out, I was like, Oh, let's go see. Now if I break the out, I'm like, Boring. Jesus, let's go. <laughs> I I and you know, I, the thing I like about jujitsu the most is it's like it's a martial art that you're not pulling your punches. It's re- you're really plain simulated murder. You know, it's right. you, you, you get into a, pos- a situation where somebody can break your arm break your leg, put you to sleep and kill you until you tap. And then they let go and you tap hands and do it again. <laughs> and it's like this thing where it's like, you know, you're putting your life in these guys' hands. I mean, my friends from jujitsu are like, I barely hang out with them in the outside world. But if, if there was a problem, they'd be some of the first people I'd call. If I need to help moving, I'd call the guys from my jujitsu studio before I'd call you guys. Yeah. You know what Me I mean? Me and Brad probably wouldn't be that helpful. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's, there's just this meditation about it that's just, been really really fun like i you know i i, I feel like i feel like that i'm a like crossfitter or vegan now when i talk about jujitsu because i'm like everybody should do well, it let's try the kind of thing where it's like you have to be so focused you're not your brain isn't going to all these other places you're really concentrating it turns on off yeah all my daily day like for you know an hour and a half two hours a day when i'm doing jujitsu i'm thinking about how am i gonna get out of this it's problem like problem solving you know it's under duress yeah and it's awesome and fun and especially when you starts when you get to a point where it starts working, and you see like you see yourself using jujitsu, and you're relaxing and you're breathing, and like you know, it's like I still really enjoy rolling with white belts now because I see that I remember that I tell white belt everybody that comes in their first class, you know, after the first class, I sit down with them and I say, um, take a big deep breath and remember every single person in this room, including John and my instructor, have been exactly where you are today, and I guarantee you it gets funner. And usually people are really excited. I mean, the jujitsu, the hardest thing to learn how to do is relax and breathe. It's a lazy man sport. You're doing the least amount of work you can to put somebody to sleep. And everybody should do it. It's not <laughs> fun. religion. It's fun. It's not a religion. Because there's definitely some schools that turn a little cultish. I've seen a lot of, in a lot of martial arts, I've seen this like weird cult mentality to martial arts. And I hated that. Yeah. You know, I think jujitsu is. Fun. And it's, I mean, I'm one of those lucky guys that travel still enough where I, I pack a gi and I, you know, most towns I'll walk, you know, I'll look up at school and I'll walk and I go, Hey, my name's John Bush. I train at these schools, you know, my instructors, this guy, um, I'm living here for the next couple months or I'll be coming here a lot and I just want to train. And they're like, open arms, come on in. Great to have you. And you get to learn something new from everybody. Um, so I'm going to change the subject real quick. Here. Right. Sure, bro. Uh-oh. We have a little nice. segment uh, that we do on the show called Mystery Friend. And oh, did you see someone tweeted at us? They're working on a theme song. Yeah. So I'm, I'm sorry. Looking to, forward to I that. didn't respond to that. You can. Uh, what's I a, responded. Uh, Brad responded. Okay. Email. Please send it to us. Um. Yeah. Maybe we'll have it in time for this episode. Never know. <clears throat> Mystery Friend is we go to a friend of yours 
we asked them for like a question to get something for you to talk about. And then, and you need to tell, you know, you need to, figure, la- you elaborate to figure out who the, the friend is. Yeah. You oh. elaborate on the story first and then you have to tell who the friend is. All right. It better not be Max. Cause that's too, that's a too that's easy. Pretty obvious. That does seem pretty obvious. Um, tell us about Cynthia from new age hippie AIDS circus. <laughs> <laughs> Cynthia. Jesus Christ. The new AIDS hippie AIDS circus. I, I can't believe you know somebody that knows about that. <laughs> Oh, Jesus. I don't even know where to begin. Nice work, Brad. <laughs> God, I don't even know what friend could have brought that up. You don't know James Rotano. That's the only person I can think of that knows who that is. Tell the story. Anyway, so yeah. the New Age Hippie Aid Circus. Jesus, this is going back to like the early 80s when I just got back to Santa Cruz. I think it was James Rotano. Or was it? No, it was Gardner. So my buddy Gardner got thrown out of his house by his parents, and he was probably 15. And... He just got a job and f- had to find an apartment. And he found an apartment with this woman, Cynthia. <laughs> God, I wish I could remember her awful nickname we had for her. It's so mean. <laughs> that wasn't it. I didn't say it. <laughs> no, no. The hippie AIDS circus. That's a whole nother. That was her friends. So anyway, so James, so Gardner gets this apartment in the West side of Santa Cruz. And it was like, you know, a real two bedroom apartment. Like it was just like a place. And of course, Gardner's like, I'm, I'm having my friends over. And so Gardner's friends are like boots and braces, skinny guys. Right. They were just like beer chug. And Cynthia was, you know, a little, a little overweight. Nice. And she was like, whatever. But she would bring her friends over. And her friends were these crazy hippie dudes and just girls and just hippies. They would like play bongos and smoke weed and just like dreadlock, like hippies. <laughs> And we started calling them the New Age Hippie Aid Circus because they were just this crazy group of people. But so you would go – so like on Fridays and Saturdays, these – like at the end of the night, these groups – a group of skinheads would come over to this apartment and these groups of hippies would come over to this house. And we'd all just smoke – like literally we, like the skinheads would all hang in the kitchen and the hippies would all hang in the living room. Hippies would be smoking weed and we would all be drinking beer and listening to music. And like we, there was no hatred or anything. Like we just thought they were funny old hippies. But every once in a while, somebody from our crew would sleep with a girl from their crew. <laughs> and it just turned. And then, like, if you slept with one of the girls, you got a name for the. the we named all these hippies, like Falu, the flute player, and, uh, and uh, Pajama, Pajama Jim. And, like, there was, like, we nicknamed all these, like, hippies would hang out at the house. And uh, I remember, like, James Otano slept with one of the hippie girls. Ooh, I probably shouldn't have said his last name, but whatever. Um, and so he was, he, he was, he was, uh, Micah, the knife thrower of the, you know, we just, it was just, we were all like teenagers being silly. And, um, that's funny. I haven't thought about that. That was like the first time one of our friends had their own apartment. Okay. Yeah. That's huge. Yeah. Who do you think would have asked you about that? I have no idea. That's the really the weird part. Cause that is such an obscure. <laughs> the funny part about Cynthia too, is that everybody slept with Cynthia. <laughs> Did you? I did. <laughs> and then, like... You guys were, like, 15. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody suffered there. Like, it was just, like, one of those things where you, I just woke up. It was like, a rite hey. of passage. Like, yeah. I, put in my, I mean, at 15, it was just, like, <laughs> yeah. anybody that wanted to have sex with me, I was just like, yes. <laughs> Life is... It's real. Um, I wasn't proud of the moment at the time. But, yeah, but like, five years later, we ran into Cynthia in San Francisco, and she was gorgeous. Really? Like, she blossomed late. And she was, like... Just look, we were all like, holy cow. Look at, like, and then I tried to date her and she was like, nah. I was like, damn it. 
<laughs> Too late. I uh, know. All right. That's you, so do weird. Do you think you know who it is? I mean, is it somebody from New York? This person actually gave me three questions. Oh, well, give me the other two. I'll, and give, then... you, I'll give you the, the give next it. one, and maybe this will help. Right. But you got to tell the story. I think I know this story. Uh, Your first wetsuit. Uh, <laughs> it's not helping me. Oh, my God. That's a really good story. I told this. I don't remember why. I t- this story came to me. <laughs> Once again, me trying to like bang some hot girl. And she was like, tell me the most embarrassing story of you. And I sat there for a second. And I was like, okay, I got a really embarrassing story for you. And I told this story to this girl. And then all of a sudden it was like my new favorite story to tell. When I was a little kid, and this is probably when I was 10, 10 or 11, I was little, like Oscar little. Like I was right. a little scrawny kid. And like I had like, they, we had, they had O'Neill, O'Neill Surf Shop. And Mr. O'Neill was like a patron saint of surfing in Santa Cruz. So he would give all the poor kids, like he'd fix up an old board. He, you know, he'd give you, you know, a wetsuit that fit you. He was a really cool. And he gave me old boards. So I had a board. And then he gave me like a spring suit, which is just basically a shirt, like a wetsuit shirt. Right. And the Pacific is freezing. Yeah. Um, but all my friends had full suits. You ha- I mean, in Santa Cruz, you really had to have a full suit to surf or you were just like <laughs> surfing, freezing. Um, so I was just like, I need a full suit. I need a full suit. I think it was this. I think this was sixth grade. It must have been sixth grade. So maybe I was a little older. But I remember I was just like, Mom, I need a. And that, it was fifty bucks for a full suit. For a used full suit, those days it was fifty bucks. Which now seems like I got fifty bucks in my pocket right now. But then it was a lot of money. So I spent like, and my mom was like, If you see, if you can make half, I'll pay the other half. So I spent a whole summer doing everything. I mean, saving pennies, right. like. I, I'd mow lawns for 25 cents. I would do, you know, scrap everything I could do for like three months to save, save up $25. I saved up $25. My mom gave me $25. We went to the Santa, Santa Cruz flea market. It used to be at this drive-in movie theater. And I searched all day for what? And I'm so small, it's really hard to find a suit. I'm telling you, all day I tried on 500 web suits. Never fit me. I was getting desperate and sad. and <laughs> Oh, I was so miserable. And finally, like towards the end, I find this amazing suit that was like all black, had yellow lightning bolts down the sleeves and down the legs. Totally awesome. Put it on. It fit me. I was like, I can't believe it. I can't believe how psyched I am right now. So got get home. Next day, you know, we all went surfing before school at Cowles. And um, we just get all, we, I put the suit on. I put, you know, back in those days, you'd put the suit on and tie it around your waist to ride your bike. You'd only put the pants on. So I get up to the guy. I see my friends on like Mark Goodrich and Mario Escobar and these guys. And we're like, dude, you got a suit. Ah, high five and everybody. We're all looking at the waves. Y'all got our boards. And we're like, all right, let's go. And I pull up my suit and I zip it up. And I remember I looked over at Mark Goodrich and he looked at me and his eyes are like this big. And he just starts laughing. I'm like, what? And then I look around and everybody starts laughing. And everybody's laughing at me. And I'm just sitting here going, what? 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 And then Mark comes up and he's like, dude, that's a girl's suit. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, it's got boobies and it has booby indents on it. So a woman could put it on and put like, it had like extra things on the chest at these boobs. And, and there was like a bunch of old, old surf. I mean, there's guys in Santa Cruz that called me little girl was my nickname for so long with some of these old surfers in Santa Cruz. I mean, I tore this suit off me in one second and threw it in the ocean. Like that's how I was, and ran home crying and was like, oh, that's devastate. I mean, I never got another wetsuit. I, was, was, uh, I think that was almost into my surfing career. I was just you like, you could be a pro surfer by now. Oh, I mean, 
Zach Acker and Nate Acker and Sean Barron. I mean, those were my friends. And now they're, they were all super pro surfers. And I was just like, fuck surfing. I'm punk rock, beard, girls, goddammit. <laughs> I was like, It's still, there's a little part of it when I tell that story that it's like, it hurts my soul. Like, <laughs> I, feel, I feel a little sorry terrible. for that. For that it's one guy. of the worst moments of my life. Is that, so that doesn't help you as far as who the mystery friend could be? That doesn't. I told that story a lot. Yeah. What's this, the third one? The, What's third the third question one? you actually already addressed, which was jo- Johnny Peabucks had to get his name. Can you, is this a New York friend or a California friend? Cali. Darius? No. Do, 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 do. <laughs> you got to give John another clue. Yeah, the new, the new HAP 8 circus is so random. The ha- he has to be somebody from Santa Cruz. But I don't- so, yeah, you've already, you've already said his name during this podcast. It's not James Otano? No. Joel Loya? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, well, Joel is part of that circus, too. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, Joel Loya was the, was the king of the skins back in the day. Yeah, that's hilarious. So, John, what's your sort of, like, situation like now? Like, what are you working on? What's your kind of day-to-day? Man, my life has turned into reading emails and going to meetings. And yeah. It's fucking garbage. <laughs> but, so let me recap because, <clears throat> yeah, you've, so your, your new career post, um, post being a roadie and post being a bar, the Coolest bartender in New York City. I did win Best Bartender in New York 2004. Yeah. Time out. Best Bartender of the Year. So. Won an iPad. And it was like, that was when iPads were brand new. And I was like, look at this thing. Nice. Look gnarly. Um, so you started this with one, with, with a, the, you started out with Thistle Hill out yeah. in Brooklyn. And I've always, like, I've always attributed your success to you guys opened a bar in the right place at the right time. Is we did really? we did at the time, but then that neighborhood changed a lot. Right. That neighborhood turned it was Park Slope, Brooklyn back then. It was kind of just a sleepy little Irish neighborhood. And you opened a tiny little spot with mm-hmm. food and, and it blew up. You paid back all your debtors like in like one nah, quarter that's of the not time. True, but we 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 we, we were ma- making money and, and paying people back. Oh, okay. We didn't pay people back until we actually sold the building. Oh, okay. But it was it, it happened much faster than you expected. Yeah. I mean, the, well, the buzz happened a lot faster. So you guys, that. I mean, you were already like, you were already, and then you opened your second spot before you hooked up with Talde, right? Nope. Second spot we opened up with Oh, it was. Yeah. Okay. All right. And then we opened up, you know, a bunch of spots. I mean, it's, it's great. As I said, I'm very proud of what I, what I do. And people say I'm really good at it. And that's awesome. Um, I'm just turning into an adult. That sucks. <laughs> You had to do it sometime, man. I did. Did I? I, I know people like, decided never you know, to do it. I, have ki- I had kids, and, mm-hmm. and that's the way I t- turned mm-hmm. it around. If you, you can do can. it, I guess anybody can do it. Everybody, I guess, has to be an adult at some point. I know. I'll never forget when you and Catherine used to not say, we're not together. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> we're not dating. <laughs> I, I'm never going to get married. Yeah, we I'm were never going to have kids. <laughs> you're in denial? Yeah. But, I, I, you know... <laughs> No, I, you know, I like what I do. I just, this, New York City's just changed so much that it's not the city that I fell in love with. Like, you know, up, even up to about five years ago, I thought I was going to be here forever. And for the first time in the last couple of years, I'm like, I got to get the fuck out of here. Well, at this point, you are getting out. You're, you're opening places outside yeah. of New York. Yeah. I mean, I, I like to travel. I mean, luckily, because of work, I still get to travel a bunch. I'm going down to Miami on Monday. Um you know, I, every time I hear myself complain, I'm like, shut the fuck up. <laughs> You're doing fine. <laughs> Things are good. 
Stop complaining. I mean, yeah, the curse of an interesting life, as they call it, right? Well, yeah. your life never seems as interesting to you, though. I feel like in general. I guess. I mean, when I was traveling a lot, you know, I, I, my biggest claim to fame is I've been to like 68 countries. You know, you know, I've lived in a lot of other countries. I really got to see a lot of the world. And I remember being like, okay, but that's not enough. I, my big joke used to be is like I drank through my 20s. I traveled through my 30s. I'm going to work my ass off through my 40s so I can travel through my 50s so I can drink through my 60s. Like I want to. It's a good plan. You know, and I'm still kind of on that path. And I got to remember that, you know, I'm three, seven years into my 10-year plan, which is pretty good. Speaking of travel, talk about your photo career, especially in the Middle East. Oh, that photo career was just down a little bit. Is yeah, I get it. Yeah, the photo career was super fun. I never made a single dime taking photos, but I, um, I got to go everywhere. Um, I was... It all it was all a big fat mic thing. I remember I remember having a meltdown on tour and just being like, you know, it's hard when you're like the buddy of the band from the beginning and you kind of felt like you were part of the band and then one day all of a sudden somebody tells you you're not in this fucking band. You know, you work for me. Yeah, when your be- when your best friend that you traveled with with for you know all over the world for five years, living the dirt, all of a sudden goes, you're actually my employee, not part of this band. Right, was heartbreaking for me, and. um I remember just being like, okay, now I gotta find something else to do. And I was having like kind of a panic attack about it. And Fat Mike pulled me aside and was like, well, I just don't know what to do. I, I need to figure out something else to do. I need to just uh, blah, blah. And he was just like, why don't you become a photographer? You always have, I always had a camera. I always took pictures. He's like, be a photographer. You know, the Warp Tour needs a photographer. Like, we need photography. And I was like, I don't even know where to begin. He's like, well, come on next tour with us and be a photographer. And um, we're not gonna pay you, but, you know, we'll give you a bump in the bus. And, and if you take any good photos, we'll buy them from you. So that kind of just turned into a career of me just spending, I don't know, probably five, six years really kind of trying to be a photographer. Um, it was super fun. Um, but how did, like, the Iraq thing happen? The Iraq thing happened when, I, forget, I think it was, I can't remember what band. One band went to Iraq and played on an aircraft carrier. And Fitzjoy, which is an old tour manager, did that tour. And then when he made some connections on that tour, and they were like, okay, we're looking for bands that want to come in, go in-country and play these USO shows, which is like you go out to these, these forward operation bases all over Iraq and just entertain the troops. I mean, these poor kids are just sitting in a puddle of mud, literally, right. bored as shit with nothing to do. And a band will show up, and we're, we're here to play for you guys. And, you know, we'll bring a bunch of fake beer, which was so lame. They'd give us, like, we'd come out with, like, non-alcoholic Budweiser tasted really? like vegetable juice and give it to all the guys and the band, the, the vandals would play like, like kids that don't know who the vandals were were going nuts but the kids that did know who the vandals were were going crazy <laughs> oh my god but so the vandals decided to go because they just were adventurous and uh, you know a little like you know super a little pro-america right um but josh Fraze, the drummer was like i ain't going to iraq so they got byron from pennywise I was like i'll go and then the whole crew for the band was like, fuck that. I'm not going to Iraq. I'm not in this band. Like, <laughs> no. So my buddy Carlos was the tour manager of the Vandals at the time. He's like, I bet you my buddy John. Like, they just needed another pair of hands, right. really. They're like, my buddy John would go. And he called me up. And he was like, he called me up. We went there December, December 2003. He called me up. Like he's like, hey, we're going to Iraq in four days. I need to know if you can come in like the next hour. 
And I remember I called my girlfriend and she was like, don't go. And I called my mom. She was like, don't go. And I called Carlos back and I was like, I'm coming. <laughs> you know, I just thought it was like, you couldn't, you know, I'm one of the only people in my family that didn't serve in the military. And I was like, not that I ever had a guilt about that, but I was always like, I kind of want to see war. I kind of want to just see what it, see what it's like. And I'll never forget just like you get all this stuff. And it's like, they give you, I got issued a bulletproof vest and a helmet and we were flying in Iraq and my quote is I was the only person there having a really good time. Like I was just like, I was playing army, you know, I was hanging out with soldiers and, you know, going to shooting range and shooting guns and taking tons of photos. And we were flying around in Blackhawks every day, you know, like getting a Blackhawk. We'd have one Blackhawk with all the equipment jammed into it. Then one with all the band that jammed into it. That my mind. Amps and, in a Blackhawk yeah. helicopter. And you'd Isn't fly and then we'd yeah. un- unhook everything. We'd set it up. And luckily for being a photographer, I just was taking photos. Um, but, you know, got to go all over Iraq. And then, you know, had a couple of days off where we got to go into Baghdad and like go some tours in the Baghdad. And we went to the Baghdad hotel. We spent New Year's Eve, we spent Christmas and New Year's Eve in Baghdad. It was pretty crazy. How did the photos turn out from that trip? Pretty good. Take yeah. some good photos from that. You know, it was it was definitely a different time of the war. It was right, you know, when the war was over, we won, right. and kind of before the insurgency. So it was a little safe, but you know, our base got mortared a bunch of times when we were there. Nothing too close. Uh, I'll never forget how scared we were in Kuwait. The we flew into Kuwait, spent a night in Kuwait, and then went to Iraq. And that we were all just sleeping there, going, "What the fuck did we get ourselves into? Why are we? This is so stupid. We're going to a war zone for free." And I remember we coming back and sleeping in those same huts and at like a month later and just just going, that was fucking amazing. <laughs> like I want to do it again. Like I would do it again. I mean, you know, just, just hang, it was like, you're hanging out with guys our age. Yeah. It was like all night long we were playing video games and eating at the mess and, you know, buying black market booze and talking to do like, you know me, I like to shoot the shit with anybody. Yeah. So like meeting people, talking to people, like it was funny. It was a, it was a, total obscure weird adventure that you know and i got to see war in real life you know it was kind of scary and exhilarating and fun and, and you didn't have to shoot anybody and i didn't have to shoot anybody i don't know if i shoot anybody. shot a lot of guns though it was really fun they were real fun but you didn't what was the time that you were you were offered to, to blow up a cow oh that was in cambodia <laughs> yeah i went to i went to southeast asia for a long time <laughs> And when I was in Cambodia, somebody told me, like, you got to go to the shooting range. And I was like, okay. And I spent a whole day at the shoot, like a mile out of this, couple miles out of the city, way out. And they were like, I mean, I have these photos of just, they just opened up this house with every gun you can think of. Like, what do you want to shoot? I started that one, that one. And they just started pulling guns out and putting it on this rack. And like, like, I was throwing hand grenades and I got hammered. I was super drunk. Like I drank, like I spent, and then they pulled out RPGs and I was like shooting RPGs and they're like, oh, you for, you know, for 80 bucks, you can blow up a cow. And I was just like, oh, I don't want to <laughs> Like that's gnarly. It is so wrong, man. Yeah, dude. It was, it was just, it, it was one of the situations where I was just like, then I was like, no, I don't do that. I don't, but I'll, I'll shoot a couple more rockets if I can shoot a couple more rockets. And like, yeah, totally. You know, there was like, I think it was 20 bucks a rocket. Wow. But it was like, you know, you could shoot an AK-47, like three mags for five bucks. And then like, I was shooting like full belts of M60 for 10 bucks. It was throwing hand gr- $5 hand grenades. Like it was so funny too because they were like – The hand grenade thing is scary. It was really scary. And if I was <laughs> a little in the bag, I probably wouldn't have done it. But it was throwing it in the water. Like you were throwing it in this pond, this pond, which I guess must have been really deep. 
But like, you know, the guy was like showing me how to do it. And he's like, mm, like this. And I was like, all right. And I pulled the pin. And they're like, no, no, wait. And they were fucking with me. I was like, what, what? <laughs> and they're like, no, no, throw in the water. Like, oh. So I literally, I threw, like, I was like, ah, just like the, the sissies. Like, ah. And then I lied down on the ground. And and then like they explode in the water. It's like up all, all over all of us. And they're just standing there drinking beers too. And I'm the only guy lying in the dirt. It was really embarrassing. That Dude, that's insane. Yeah. It was pretty crazy. Like, I don't know why I did it. I just was like, fuck it. Let's get weird. You know, I climbed Mount Everest on that same trip. Well, I went to like base camp of Mount Everest, just wearing vans. <laughs> People were like, this is the worst thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> you walk straight uphill for 12 days in vans from, from you would wear the dawn vans till out. dusk. How did you not wear through them, Because it was dirt trails. It was cement, probably. I mean, they were pretty Jeez. ruined by the time I got back. This is stupid. I remember like... I was there with my friend Lila Lee. You, you know Lila. Yeah. Lila Lee was living in Kathmandu, so I went and visited her. So for Chris, after Christmas, we went up to – I spent another New Year's up on, on in Salikumbo. And we went, walked up there together. And it was so funny when I was there. I was like – I was closer – I was probably almost in Asia for a year at that point already. And I was like – I'd go up there and I'd meet all these fucking hippies that were like there studying the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And I'd just be like, is there any place around here that sells a USA Today? Like, <laughs> like I got I, I to gotta know how the Yankees are doing. <laughs> like, what's this? Any, I need scores. And can, this, the new Star Wars movie's coming out soon. I got to go home sooner than later. Like, and these people were just like, what the fuck are you doing here? Like, why are you here? And I was just like, I'm just here to drink beer and look at old stuff. I don't know. I, I just wanted to have experiences. I was never, I, none of my travels are like, were a soul searching adventure like right. i would always say i like me I, i'm not trying to change i just want to have some to mm, check some shit out yeah man. i have some new stories to tell all right oh, i told you that would be good that i never had a doubt i've never <laughs> i never for a second doubted that john bush would be a good podcast guest um did you guys know each other before? yeah yeah we found out a bunch of times i realized when i opened the door and you were both there that like oh I figured. I figured. I saw did. him. We walked. I saw him. He was walking when I was walking in. So we, okay, came in together. Yeah, yeah. We've hung. We've hung out a lot of times. I figured. You, yeah, I figured as much. Yeah. But then it didn't. But then I, you know, when I, like I said, the possibility was that you didn't. I know everyone, Brad. But you knew how to pronounce his last name, though. I do. He has a very easy name to pronounce. <laughs> um, and I only made one joke about the band Bush, <laughs> which was not easy. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, uh, thanks to John for coming by. Check out his restaurants, I guess. <laughs> and he is—I don't know. I like—I don't know what to do to promote him. Like John definitely doesn't need us to promote him. Yeah, he's like opening places up all the time now. So yeah, you know, he's, he's partners with Tall Day. He's got a Tall Day in whatever. I don't know. Look it up. Yeah, look it up. If we want, we can put some links. We'll yeah, put some links. It's the least I can do for John. Yeah, put some links. And uh, if you're gonna leave a review on Yelp, leave a nice one. You know? <laughs> oh God. <laughs> Don't be a dick. <laughs> yeah, try to balance out some of that yeah, garbage seriously. out there. Get a life. Anyways. Uh, if you want to leave us a review. If you want to leave us a review, nice. You can go to <laughs> iTunes, uh, leave us a five-star review. Also, don't be a dick. Uh, yeah, who, dude, who goes to iTunes and leaves a podcast review, negative podcast review, <laughs> which has happened to us? Only Very rarely. But to me, it's this thing where it's like, 
Like you do this thing for free. Everybody's doing it for free. And it's like, just like, it's like, if you don't, if I listen to a podcast, I don't like it. It's like, like John was saying about that. It's like, yeah, just don't listen to it again. Like, I don't think about it. I'm not like, you know, except, okay. Yeah, it's true. It's I true. Feel there's like, enough people. There's enough, like the good stuff usually gets some press, even, even though there's a million podcasts. I'm saying like, yes, I agree. But like, like kind of like what John said, it's like, if I hire a contractor to work in my house and rip me off for $5,000 or something, it's right. like, and like, that's like a form of recourse I have like, sure. But like, yeah, to be like, I listen to this free podcast and like, I didn't like the sound of this guy's voice. <laughs> like, it's sort of like, really, you're going to sit down and take the time. Like, it's so it's a little nitpicky. Our culture has just gotten defocused defocused so let's let's all read Eckhart Tolle so refocus refocus if you really want to focus focus on patreon.com slash going off track I'm focusing on it right now you could you oh, could, wait 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 I'm focusing on it I see early episodes I see get, bonus outtakes I see bonus wait I new video of Jonah no that's not there yet <laughs> I see I could this can't be true bonus patreon only episodes Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah. Full 30 minute episodes with just us talking about <laughs> jury duty. <laughs> <laughs> Gear. Uh, we do have some crazy bonus. Some of the, we have upcoming bonus episodes. It won't be just me and Jonah and Benny talking shit yeah. about stuff. But yeah. We also have that. So we have that. If and you're, people, if you're still listening this late in this podcast, you probably would enjoy those. You probably would enjoy those. <laughs> so yeah, you can check those out. You can support us at patreon.com slash going off track. You can also shoot us a dollar to any amount. I believe there's no minimum amount. Uh, Ed from beach Lang has actually proved there's no minimum yeah. amount. <laughs> by texting by sending us 69 cents uh and four dollars and 20 cents so uh you can do that uh venmo.com slash off track um we talked about itunes you can also tweet at us blah 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 um, and everything you can get through our website going off track yeah so if you go to going off track.com you can see it all you can also stream listen to episodes there yes right all of them they're all there from number one on from number one to number Almost 300. Almost. We're getting there. Wow. It's been a wild ride, Brad. What a ride. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, <laughs> anything else to add? No, I'm exhausted. All right. Uh, we are going to eat some Girl Scout cookies and we'll be back next week with uh, more podcasting. Fun. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.